0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Despite millennia of human existence, so many people still have a hard time figuring out what makes them happy. Satisfaction can be fleeting, and we're not always asking ourselves the right questions or going in the right direction. How do we find happiness that lasts?
1: Number one, why are you alive? Number two, what would you be willing to die for? The unhappiest people have no answer to either question. The happiest people have answers to both.
0: We often get messages from the outside world about things we could obtain or become that would make us happier. But as most of us know from experience, those promises don't always pan out or bring much meaning. What if we actually wanted less? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Arthur Brooks teaches classes on happiness at Harvard Business School. He's also written several books and columns about pursuing our best lives and finding purpose and satisfaction. He shares what he's learned about wanting less and explains how he got there. Here's Brooks on stage at the festival.
1: Most of the time when you're talking about how to live a better life, the message that you get is how to have more, more money, more possessions, more relationships, more experiences, more fun. I want to talk to you today about how to go the other direction and how in so doing and going counter to the direction of the world tells you that in fact you can find the happiness that you really seek. Let me tell you where this story starts. Um, I have three children. Uh, My children are 24, 22, and 19. Now my 24-year-old is a math teacher for middle school students. My 22-year-old is a Special Forces Marine. And my youngest daughter, who's 19, was the only one left living with us during the coronavirus epidemic. You know how hard it was for high school students to live through that, especially if It was a child alone at home with her parents, the suffering that she endured. And it was day after day of the sorry excuse for school that was called Zoom, and it was not a happy time for her especially. But one morning, I walked down expecting to find her at the kitchen table with her laptop in math class, and she was laughing at the computer, laughing at the computer screen. And I said, honey, what are you looking at? And she said, I'm not in class. I said, I can tell. What are you watching? And she said, I'm watching a YouTube video of an old man walking around like a chicken and trying to sing. And I thought to myself, well, as a shallow person myself, I'm not above looking at that and having a good laugh with my daughter. So I said, show me what you're looking at. And this is the old man walking like a chicken and trying to sing that my daughter was watching. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. That was a 2017 concert, which means that old Mick Jagger was about 100 at the time. And this was the question that prompted my, that was the performance that prompted my daughter to ask me this question. Do you people like this? (laughs) And I took great umbrage at that, you people. I know what she means by that. But it gave me an opportunity to bring home to my beloved daughter, what I do for a living. Now, I have the weirdest job in academia. I teach at the Harvard Business School. I believe the greatest business school in the world. When people ask me at a party, what do you do for a living, which is what we always do in the United States, what do you do for a living? That's the icebreaker question. I lived half of my adult life in Spain and half in the United States. And in Spain, the icebreaker question is, where are you going on vacation? which is a healthier question for happiness. But in the States, nonetheless, what do you do for a living? I say, I teach at the Harvard Business School. People say, oh, marketing, accounting, finance, supply chain management, something really practical like that. I say, no, I teach happiness. And they think I'm lying. Say, no, 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 no lie. This is what everybody needs to learn. Not the feelings, not the the good vibes, not the self-improvement, no. You need, I need, we all need, and especially leaders need, the science of happiness for career endurance, for family functionality, and most importantly, to make a better world through our work. Now, it's always a good opportunity to bring these ideas home to my own kids. And my daughter gave me a golden opportunity by showing me Mick Jagger. Here's what I told her that day when she said, why is this song so popular? By the way, I Can't Get No Satisfaction is the third most popular rock and roll song of all time. It debuted at number one on the charts when I was one. (laughs) I'm not very young. This has endured for a reason. I said, sweetheart, this is not because of the song. It's not a great song. It's because of the message. It speaks volumes about the experience of human life. She said, what? I can't get any satisfaction. I'm doomed to, to suffer, to toil. She's kind of dramatic. And I said, not exactly. I said, the world does conspire against your happiness and your satisfaction, but you can fix that. You have to know how. You got to do the work. And here's what I told her, how she can do it, how I can do it, how we all can do it. Now, the first thing that I had to explain, that I always have to explain, I teach this to the second year MBA students at the Harvard Business School, is what is it? Now, on the first day of class, my students come in, and, and, and I say, look, you've, you've you know, given up your other electives to come to this class, and it's a pretty popular class. I mean, free candy, kids. Happiness. You must know what happiness is. So I cold call a couple of people. What is it? And they always say, it's that feeling I get when, and they get a kind of a faraway look in their eyes, you know, Christmas morning, Thanksgiving day. I see my my friends that I haven't seen, that feeling that I get. I say, oh, it's a feeling. Happiness is a feeling. Is that right? So why would you take a class in feelings? You wouldn't. The point is that happiness isn't a feeling. Your Thanksgiving dinner is not the smell of the turkey either. The smell of the turkey is evidence of Thanksgiving dinner. And your happy feelings are evidence of happiness. So what is it? And the answer is basically this. Now your Thanksgiving dinner, I could describe in a lot of different ways. If I asked any of you, what's dinner? Some of you would say it's a bunch of ingredients. Some of you would say it's a bunch of dishes. But if you're kind of a, a nutrition nerd like me, you'd say it's a combination of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. That's what Thanksgiving dinner is. That's literally true. Those are the macronutrients of all food. If you don't feel well and you come to me for advice, the first thing I'm gonna ask you about is what you're eating. And if you're eating an unbalanced diet, so your macronutrients aren't right, typically what I'll find is you're eating too many carbohydrates and not enough protein, and I'll rebalance your diet and you'll feel somewhat better. Now, I'm not here to tell you about Thanksgiving. I'm here to tell you about happiness, and it's just the same. Happiness is made up of macronutrient parts, which you need in both balance and abundance. And the three component parts of all happiness For all people in the whole world are these, enjoyment, meaning, and satisfaction. Now this should kind of make sense to you, except I gotta define these things. The whole science of happiness, which has exploded over the past 30 years among neuroscientists and applied philosophers and especially social scientists like me, social scientists, social psychologists, or like me, behavioral economists, they dig into one or more of these three dimensions. So let me tell you what they are, because some of you probably would like to be happier. Use this, think of this as a diagnostic device into your own happiness. My guess is that you're deficient in one or more of these three things if you're not as happy as you think that you would like to be. So let's first start with enjoyment. You think you know what it is? It's pleasure. Incorrect. Your enjoyment is your pleasure plus higher consciousness. Now, I'm not trying to be a new age guy here. Higher consciousness is a part of your brain that is the most human part of your brain. Let me explain. Now, we have an onboard capacity to feel emotions that happen to us. This is called the limbic system of the brain. It was evolved over a 40 million year period. It's in the very center part of your brain. It's incredibly ancient. It's the way it has been all the way over the past million years, it hasn't changed. It has really one function to make you feel things so that you can behave in the right way given your circumstances. You need to feel fear when you hear a twig snap behind you in the woods, because that will keep you alive. You need to feel disgust when there's something on the bottom of your shoe, because it might contain a pathogen. All of those basic emotions, positive and negative, they happen to you through your limbic system. That's also the source of pleasure. You take a little drink of grain alcohol, it makes you slightly inebriated, that's pleasure. That's coming to you from a a more basic part of your brain. It's not a conscious thought that you want to feel that alcohol, the alcohol feeling happens to you. There are lots of feelings that you have, there's a lot of pleasure that you have that that occurs to you. You're passive. That won't bring happiness because it comes and goes quickly. It's a process I'm gonna talk about a little bit later that shows that all the human emotions, they, they evaporate like a summer rain, and so do your pleasures. You can't get enduring happiness from pleasure, unless, unless you move the experience of your pleasure to the front part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. <clears throat> That's the human part of your brain. It's only the way it's been over the past quarter million years. That's what makes you uniquely human. You said to yourself, I think I'll go on my vacation to the Aspen Ideas Festival. That wasn't your limbic system. That was your prefrontal cortex making a decision. Now, why is that so important? Because in your prefrontal cortex, you can have experiences and make decisions that will give you memories with people that you love. That's how to turn pleasure into enjoyment. On Thanksgiving Day, you get a lot of pleasure from that turkey dinner. It tastes good, it fills your stomach, But you want to get enjoyment from that? You have to make memories with people that you love, and that's enjoyment. Don't content yourself with pleasure, which too many people do, because you won't get happiness. Do the things that you do for pleasure with the people that you love in moderation do them consistently. That enjoyment, which occupies your whole brain, will be the enduring source of your happiness. That's why you tell your kids, it's a beautiful day. Don't sit inside watching the television or looking at the computer. Go outside and play with your friends. You're saying, don't content yourself with pleasure. Look for enjoyment. And you need to do the same thing, too. That's, that's macronutrient number one. Macronutrient number two is meaning we all know we need it. I find that the, the, the saddest people I've ever met, they, they're bereft of meaning in their lives. Now, to begin with, philosophers wrestle over not the meaning of life, but the meaning of meaning. Of course, philosophers have to make everything complicated. But this is really important. If you believe that your life lacks purpose, that you lack direction in your life, the questions I'm going to start asking you are not what's your life's meaning, but what is the that the thing that you're missing in meaning, and it's one of three things. You will have meaning in your life if you have coherence. You believe that things happen for a reason. Even if you don't quite understand it, you believe that things happen for a reason. You have a sense of purpose, that you're alive in order to do something. And finally, that you have significance, that your life matters. Interestingly, I can figure out, I can predict a whole lot of your life's meaning and consequently your happiness by asking you two questions and seeing if you have an answer for me. Number one, why are you alive? Number two, what would you be willing to die for? The unhappiest people have no answer to either question. The happiest people have answers to both. It's an extraordinary thing, you know? My son, I I mentioned it before, my son Carlos. I mean, what a piece of work Carlos was. In high school, he was, the, he was not bringing me a lot of happiness. <laughs> Old Carlos, I remember, you know, I was in the sort of the depth of my despair as going back and forth to the principal's office again and again and again. Carlos is failing math. Carlos is failing history. Carlos is not living up to his potential. finally, my wife Esther, the optimist, said, at least we know he's not cheating. <laughs> 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 and I'll tell you, Carlos wasn't that happy himself either. Felt a little aimless, didn't know what he was up to. Then he joined the Marines. That was his path. That was his strategic plan. Look, he's the startup entrepreneur of the enterprise of Carlos. I'm not a military guy, but he is. And since then, he's been able to not just answer the first question is why am I alive, but more importantly, the second question, what am I willing to die for? He's willing to die for me. He's willing to die for you. He's willing to die for his country. He's willing to die for others, and he's proved that he's willing to die for others. I hope he doesn't, but he's proved that to himself, and he's finally happy because he can answer the meaning questions. Do you lack meaning in your life? Interrogate yourself with these three questions. Now, when you do, be ready for pain (laughs) because this isn't easy, and this is the second point about meaning that I have to impress upon my students back in the... Back in the 60s, the, um, there was a, you know, an old saying among the hippies, and I don't remember the 60s particularly. I was a kid, but, but I do remember that one day on the, you know, 1969, I was five years old, and, and my, there was a hippie being interviewed by some TV journalist, we were watching it on the little Zenith black and white TV in my lower middle class home in Seattle, and the, the hippie said, I remember it's very distinct, if it feels good, do it. And my dad said, that's the end of America. (laughs) (laughs) And in truth, it's pretty bad advice. I'm gonna tell you a little bit later about why that's pretty bad advice. To say if it feels good, do it. That's kind of life-ruining advice, as a matter of fact. But here's equally life-ruining advice. If it feels bad, make it stop. And that's the philosophy I see too often in my students at Harvard University. They're being told by people my age that suffering is something to eliminate now, I know, there's too much suffering, it can turn over your cart. You can have medical problems involved with depression and anxiety. These are treatable conditions that must be seen to, but suffering? We all suffer. <laughs> you don't have to go looking for it, it's gonna find you. The only question is, what do you do with it? If you spend your energy and your affection and your time and your money trying to avoid your suffering, you know what's gonna happen? You're gonna avoid meaning because each one of you who's my age or older, I could ask you, when did you figure out who you were as a person? How did you find out your meaning in life? Tell me an instance that gave you insight into your life. None of you would say that week at Disneyland. You would tell me about a person you loved and lost, a person who broke your heart, a time when you were afraid. You'd tell me about anger and sadness. You'd tell me about fear. You don't want those things. I don't want those things either. But guess what? If you don't sit with those feelings, you don't get meaning. They bring unhappiness. Here's the great paradox of happiness. It requires unhappiness. This is, you know, when we talk about happiness, there's good feelings. No, 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 no. It's much more complicated, much deeper, much more of an adventure than that. One of the reasons that people love life is because they've come to terms with suffering and seen it as a very sacred thing. I talk about the sacredness of suffering with my students, and if I'm lucky, by the end of the semester, they believe it, and they're more courageous, and they're ready to take it on. Those are the first two. Enjoyment and meaning. But then there's satisfaction. Old Mick sings, I can't get no satisfaction, and you know the feeling, isn't it? It's just that new car smell, it wears off. Satisfaction, what is it? Satisfaction is the joy, the contentment that you get as the result of a job well done, of a goal met, of something won. You know the feeling. You got the A and you worked hard for it. You got it and it was a moment of bliss. You got the job you worked for, you graduated from the Harvard Business School, whatever is your alma mater, and it was wonderful. You saw your child walking across that stage, graduating from college or high school or whatever it was, and it gave you an enormous amount of satisfaction at that moment. The problem is that actually, Mick is wrong. You can get satisfaction. If you couldn't get satisfaction, you wouldn't keep trying and trying and trying like he sings. You're not that stupid. At least, I don't think we're that stupid. The problem is you can't keep no satisfaction. The problem is that it dissipates, it evaporates, it leaves you, and then you try and you try to get it back and to keep it, and you never quite learn, right? I think of all the things that I've tried to do in my life, and every time I think, yeah, that car's going to be great, I'm going to love it forever, even though I kind of know I'm not going to, I keep acting as if I were going to, that if I actually get to the next bit of admiration from other people that if I finally get it, you know, I had a close friend and, you know, he's a writer like I am. We write books. We do all these. Then we, and, and he said, he said, I said, what did it feel like the first time you had a number one New York Times bestseller? And he said, I felt nothing. And I said, let me try. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And later when it finally happened, I called him up and I said, I didn't feel nothing. <laughs> The problem is I didn't feel something for very long either. It wears off. My one of my very closest friends, he's a a pioneer in the industry of private equity. He's 80 years old now, but he told me that he was gonna know when he was a truly successful person because he was gonna be able to go into a Mercedes dealer and buy a car in cash. And I thought, I mean, who can do that? Like drug dealers and apparently private equity managers too. So, and he said he was able to do it at 32. He walked into the Mercedes dealership with a check and he said, I want my car. Boom, they gave him the keys. Yep. Driving off the lot. When he was driving off the lot, he said to himself, I should have saved for six more months and gotten the Ferrari. (laughs) I can't keep no satisfaction, man. And that's the curse I told my little girl, and that's the curse I tell myself. Why? Is it because we're doing something wrong? No, no. Because there's a conspiracy by our brains and Mother Nature against us. It's a conspiracy called, and this is the word of the day, homeostasis. Homeostasis is the tendency in any physical, biological, or even emotional process to go back to your life equilibrium. Now, you can't stay out of equilibrium. Why? Because you have to be ready for the next set of circumstances. We're always ready. We're designed as a species to be ready all the time. That's the reason that if you went to the gym this morning and you got on the treadmill to improve your cardiovascular health, and you got your heartbeat up to 135 beats per minute, that's good for you for a little while. You got off the treadmill and within 15 minutes, your pulse was back to where it should be. Otherwise, you'd be dead in a week. That's called homeostasis, getting you ready for the next stimulus. It's true in every physical process. It's also true for emotional processes. Remember, your emotions come from the limbic system to help you survive. Fear, the master emotion has kept you alive more times than you can count and your ancestors even more than that. You need it, but you can't stay in a state of fear because if you're fearful about the last thing, you're not ready for the next thing. One of the things that psychiatrists often talk about with their patients is they have to let go of old fears. Why? Because people are miserable to be sure, but more importantly, they have to be ready for the emotions that are appropriate to the circumstances at hand. That's what being a healthy individual is all about. It's also true, however, for happy emotions. (laughs) It's not just the negative emotions, it's the happy emotions as well. You're an ancient human walking on the savanna and find a source of food, some tasty berries on a bush, for example. It gives you a tremendous amount of satisfaction, but only for a moment, because you have to be ready to experience the next set of emotions to keep you alive. That's homeostasis. Mother nature can't let you stay satisfied. Big mystery to Mick Not a mystery to neuroscientists. And that seems to be kind of a a bitter truth, isn't it? Here's the the worst part, though. You kind of know what I'm saying. It all sort of makes sense. And yet, you keep being fooled over and over again. The next thing. The next thing. The next thing, this thing is going to do it. Oh, I really want that watch. I really want those shoes. I really want that handbag, that car, that set of relationships, that friendship. I want that vacation. I want that house. I want, 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 want. Why? Because you don't know that you're getting homeostasis. And you keep running and running and running. Well, we have a term for that in my business. It's called the hedonic treadmill. I try and I try and I try. The hedonic treadmill is basically this. Hedonic means feeling. The treadmill is that you can't keep the feeling because the treadmill's running against you. That's homeostasis, running against you all the time. But it gets worse. Oh, yeah, the conspiracy gets worse. Thank you, Mother Nature. Because there's a little evil guy in the corner of your mental gym that's turning up the speed of that hedonic treadmill. So it's not enough to just try and try and try like you did, you've got to try even more to try to get a little bit of that feeling which then is evanescent, which then flees, and you run faster and faster and faster. gets worse than that, fellow strivers. This is not an average cross-section of the American population. You're successful for a reason. You worked hard. You want your lives to have meaning. You've tried harder than a lot of other people. I've seen data on the Harvard Business School graduates 10 to 15 years out, and one of the things that they find is there's good news and bad news. Here's the good news, they all, they all achieve their dreams, their, their dreams came true. That's actually not just true for Harvard graduates, that's true for all of us. Almost everybody gets what they want. The bad news is they want the wrong thing. There's a great set of studies from researchers at the University of Rochester that asks graduating seniors, imagine that you're happy Imagine you're happy in five years. I'm not going to tell you what that is. You know what that is. Now tell me why. Half of them say that they achieved achieved worldly things, money, power, pleasure, fame. Half of them say that they have good relationships, lots and lots of love. Half and half. These are called extrinsic rewards, money, power, pleasure, or intrinsic rewards, lots of relationships, lots of love. What do they find? Everybody got their goals. Everybody made their dreams. If you wanted more money, you had more money. If you wanted more friendships, you had more friendships. But the bad news is, wrong dreams, worse life. The kids at age 27, five years after graduating, who said that they wanted more stuff, more power, more management authority, more success, they had more stomach aches, they had more depression, they had more anxiety. And the ones who said they wanted better relationships, close to their parents, a lot of them said they wanted to be married. Hmm. They were happier. They were healthier. Wrong dreams, worse life. This is the same thing that's true with everybody. So the Harvard Business School graduates, 10 to 15 years after their MBA was achieved, they got the stuff that they were working for. Look, when you come to the Harvard Business School, it says, here's the deal. You're going to get two years of education so that you can be a happy person. That's not what they tell them. It's that you can be a successful person and a leader that can do good things in the world. And I appreciate that mission. I'm part of that mission. I want to spend the rest of my career being part of that mission. But it's an incomplete mission, isn't it? Because those are the people who tend to be the most dissatisfied because of the hedonic treadmill, more than the people who didn't have those dreams. Here's the thing about that. This is called, my friends, the striver's curse. You, me, those of us who are trying to do so much, that have worked harder, had bigger dreams, been told when we were kids that there's so much that we can do, maybe this sounds like you. You did your homework, you worked hard. You worked for your goals. And people said, congratulations. You're a terrific student. You're a hard worker. You're really smart. Sound familiar? There's a problem with that. Those who got this message when they were under 20, are the people most disappointed with their lives after 80. (laughs) That's the burden of high achievers. This is research from Carol and Charles Holohan, social psychologists at the University of, of Texas at Austin, who found that by looking at people who were identified as extraordinarily gifted and high achievers before they were 20 and looked at how happy they were about their lives after 80. Those that identified as most gifted were the people who were most disappointed about their lives after 80. Striver's curse, my friends, and that's because these are the people who have a hedonic treadmill that's flying with terrifying speed. How many of that, how many of those hedonic treadmills are whirring in the background? Right here, right now. Now, I realize I'm depressing you, and my little girl's getting like this. She went from, you know, happy, happy in the conversation to this ashen look, because she's a hard worker. She's like, thanks, Dad. Thanks for the lecture, Dad. I'm surprised that they still employ you at Harvard University, Dad. You get good evaluations for this? I said, ah, ah, but there's a workaround. Now, one thing I want to emphasize here, my friends, is this, Mother Nature isn't your friend. I, I love Mother Nature in lots of ways. I love Mother Nature looking out at it, the beautiful scenery here and the clean air and the, the happiness that abounds when we have this kind of sunshine. But when it comes to, to, to governing your tendencies, Mother Nature's not your friend. And this is actually a beautiful thing, isn't it? My dog, my dog Chucho, he's a limbic boy. His limbic system is really all he's got. No prefrontal cortex to speak of. And so he has feelings and he acts on those feelings. He sees the cookie, he wants to eat the cookie. He doesn't really care very much about the consequences. The result of that is twofold. Number one, he can't make plans to have a more transcendental walk in his life. The second thing is he doesn't actually suffer from a lack of satisfaction because he doesn't know what it is in the first place. You, fellow humans, have a big, meaty prefrontal cortex. You need to fight against those limbic tendencies. And if you train yourself and your prefrontal cortex to work the right way, this This is how you can be free. Ready to be free? I'm going to give you three ways to be free. I'm going to give you a, a way to rewire the matrix of dissatisfaction and to show Mother Nature the door. Here are your solutions. Number one, this is obviously an empty canvas. About five years ago, I was in Taiwan, and I was touring the National Palace Museum. For those of you who don't know, this is the world's greatest... Uh, a collection of Chinese art and artifacts. It's unbelievable, it would take you four days to see everything from the 8,000 years ago in in the early Neolithic period all the way until today. Portraits, pots, prints, sculptures, it's incredible, it's breathtaking. The problem is this, all of you know this, don't go to a museum by yourself, especially if it's vast and you try to see the whole thing because you'll walk through numbly and not remember anything except the snack bar. Don't do it that way. Here's how to go to a big museum. Hire a guide and say, I want to deeply understand 10 things. Okay? Put yourself in, a, in an expert's hands. And that's what I did. I was touring the National Palace Museum, and we were looking at this elaborate jade carving, a two-ton jade carving of a Chinese village. Glossy, beautiful, green, intricate, masterful. And I said, it's a weird thing. You know. Even if I knew nothing about Chinese art, I remarked to my guide, I said, I would know that this is Chinese. How? And he said, it has to do with the philosophy of the art. I said, well, elaborate. Tell me more. He said, okay, you as a Westerner, when I say a work of art yet to be started, what pops into your head? And I said, an empty canvas. He said, correct. Because your philosophy of art starts with nothing and is completed with a bunch of brushstrokes. In other words, you go from nothing to something. That's how art comes into creation. He said, when I think of art, I think of a different image. But first, he said, there's a problem with your metaphor. I said, what is it? He said that you can only go so far because you keep adding brushstrokes, and sooner or later, this is your work of art. This. Now, this is Jackson Pollock's 1949 number one worth about $30 million. But the point is, I defy you to add another brushstroke and to make this thing better. Now, he was actually giving me a philosophical metaphor which was this is also in the West how we see life. Your life is an empty canvas. You're trying to make it your own way. You're trying to start with nothing and you're filling it up with brush strokes from the empty canvas. Here's the problem, this is you at 45. No more room. Add more brush strokes, get nothing back, just you're just gonna make it worse. That was his point and it's kind of true, isn't it? You know, if you come to me and you say, I'm feeling frustrated and empty. You're 72 years old. I'm frustrated and empty. I'm not going to say, maybe you should try getting a boat. That's just another brushstroke, my friends. And you know it's true, because you have enough experience. But you never learn, because Mother Nature is whipping you on to go on and on. And so you try and you try, and you try adding brushstrokes to this again and again and again. And it doesn't work. He said, here is the metaphor of an unstarted work of art in the East. This is the uncarved block of jade. This is a two-ton jade boulder. Why is this a work of art that has yet to be started? Because the jade sculpture is already in there. You just need to take away the parts of the jade that are not the sculpture. That's the key. It exists already, and you can only get it by taking things away, not by adding. Now Michelangelo one time said that, you know, the work is inside. I just have to chip away the parts. He didn't mean that. That was not his metaphor. This is the real metaphor. I was working for many years, by the way. I made my living as a classical musician from when I was 19 until I was 31. I was a professional French horn player in the Barcelona Symphony. And uh, I remember I was working, I was touring in India, and a Hindustani classical musician, one time he asked me this question. He said, how can you hear the music when you're in an orchestra? I said, how can you hear anything else? It's a 100 decibels. And he said, no, no, no. There's too much sound, there's too much noise. The reason he said that is because in the East, he is a a classical musician in in India, he plays in a raga which takes away all the instruments until they find the essence of the music. It's the same metaphor, it's the same idea. And then my guide said this, this is how we see our success as well, that's me. He said, my job is to take away all the parts of me that are not me so I can find my true self, which is what we were looking at and that was this. He said, that is the secret to true success. So don't add, take away. Now, here's the good news you don't have to choose. You get both. But you better do both. You want to be really satisfied, especially as you get older, you got to stop adding. You need to start taking away. Here's another way to look at it. Here's a second solution that's complementary, it's more or less the same thing. Most people in the West and in my classes and me in my life. Here's how I find satisfaction, more stuff, more halves. I have a haves management strategy. I'm gonna have more of the things that I want. That's the wrong formula for happiness. Here's the right model for happiness. <clears throat> Your satisfaction is not what you have. It's what you have divided by what you want. Well, think about this for a second. You remember your high school fractions. If you want to increase your satisfaction, you can temporarily do so on the hedonic treadmill by increasing the numerator. Have more, have more, have more. But you know what's going to happen? And what happened to my friend at the Mercedes dealership? Without knowing it, his wants exploded. That denominator blew up. Why is it that every time I get more, I'm less satisfied? That's because your haves go up by a little, but your wants go up by a lot. See, you need not a haves management strategy, especially in the second half of your life, you need a wants management strategy. You don't need to have more, you need to want less. Here's the words of my beloved teacher and friend, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He was, not this year, this last January, but the January before, during the coronavirus epidemic, he was the first guest speaker in my leadership and happiness class at HBS. Now, of course, it wasn't in person, His Holiness was at his home in Dharamsala, where he was sequestered so he wouldn't get sick. And I was in Boston. It was about 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, so it could be Sunday morning for him when he does his sessions. And my students, you can't quite see them, they're on the other screen from him. Twenty of my students were asking him questions. Meanwhile, we simultaneously did a webcast for 14 million people around the world. It was the largest class I've ever taught. It was a lot of pressure. And I've been working with the Dalai Lama for 10 years. And so I kind of know how he's going to answer questions. And this is what I wanted him to say for my students. And boy boy, did he come through. I said, Your Holiness, how do I get lasting satisfaction? How do I keep satisfaction? And he said, you need to learn how to want what you have not to have what you want in order to get steady and stable happiness. That is a a a wants minimization strategy, that is managing the denominator in your satisfaction equation. He wasn't wasn't talking about the math, but he might as well have been. That's how to do this. One more idea. Let's make it even a a little bit more practical. I've given you the first way, chip away, and the second way is get your math right, but here's the most practical way of all. You learn in in the self-improvement world that if you wanna be really successful, you know what you need? You need a bucket list bucket list, you know? You know what a bucket list is? You're going to make a list of all your cravings, all your desires, all your attachments. Make a list, and then make a a strategic plan on how you're going to get each one of those things, right? I'm going to get it. I used to do that on my birthday. I found my bucket list on my 40th birthday. I got everything on that list, and I wasn't happy. Quite the contrary. I was the CEO. I was the president of a big think tank in Washington, D.C., and I found that list, and I was bereft of satisfaction, utterly. (laughs) The things that I'm talking about here today, by the way, are the reason I retired from that job and went into the full-time business of talking about love and happiness. (laughs) Because this is how I get my satisfaction. And you know what I figured out I needed to do? Trash that bucket list, because all it did was it inflamed my desires for haves, it built up my wants and it lowered my satisfaction, and I started what I call my reverse bucket list. Here's what I do now on my birthday. My birthday was a few weeks ago. And uh, every year on my birthday now, I'd still make a list of all my worldly wants, my worldly desires, satisfactions, cravings, all those attachments. But then I make a, 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 a metacognitive prefrontal cortex strategic plan for detaching myself from each one of those things. Not how to get them, how not to love them. Now it's interesting, I'm not saying that I'm not gonna get nice worldly things. I am sure I will buy a new car at some point. I will probably buy a house at some point. I'm not against those things. I'm not against money or power. I'm not against fame. I'm not against any of those things. I'm against attachment to those things. The Apostle Paul in the Christian Bible, he's writing to his disciple Timothy. He didn't say, money is the root of all evil. That's the most misquoted scripture. (laughs) He said, the love of money is the root of all evil. The problem isn't having stuff, it's your attachment to stuff. That's your reverse bucket list. Make a list of all those things that define you, that you're attached to and say, here's my plan for detachment. You know, at first it was kind of easy, quite frankly. <clears throat> it was easy, it was about stuff, it was about things that I wanted, things that I, that I really wanted in the world. But then I tried to make it a little bit harder, and not this last birthday, birthday, but the birthday before when I was turning 57. I actually made a list and you know what I, you know what I detached myself from? half of my political opinions. Yeah, you wanna know why? Huge attachment. The, you know Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese Buddhist monk, um, I was, passed away. He started the Plum Village community of, of Buddhists across the world, a great apostle for peace and enlightenment. I, I wrote his obituary in the Washington Post. I was privileged to do so when he died five months ago. And Thich Nhat Hanh, he said that the, the greatest attachment that many people have is to their opinions. How many of you need to put those opinions on your reverse bucket list to make a strategic plan for detaching from them? I did. Half of my political opinions. Folks, I am free. <laughs> I'm telling you, I didn't have enough friends. And the reason I didn't have enough friends is I was sorting them with respect to politics. Insanity. I was stepping over $100 bills to get to nickels, And now I can have lunch with anybody. I love all of you. And if you disagree with me, I want you to come sit next to me because it's really super interesting. I'm free, that's what this does. What are your attachments? What's holding you down? You need to want it less, you need to be less attached to it, and you can. I promise you that you can. You have to recognize the problem and make it come to life. What is, what's left after you chip away? <laughs> well, my little girl said to me, let's do something that chips away. Let's have an experience that will do so. So we walked the Camino de Santiago together across northern Spain. That's a a several hundred mile walk all the way across northern Spain where you walk 25 kilometers a day. That's all you do is you walk, and then you walk, and then you walk some more. And it kind of hurts, and it's really boring, and there's nothing to do, and you chip it all away. So this is what we decided to do. This is a practical strategy, my friends. And what was left as we chipped away, by the way, on the left, that's... a That's what you see all day, that's what you see all day. But when you really look, when you chip everything away, that thing on the right, that's what I saw. That's the blue passion flower. I took that picture on the Camino de Santiago, the summer of 2019, and uh, I'd never seen that before. And and I was so chipped away while I was walking day after day, hour after hour, (laughs) that I couldn't stop staring at this thing. I felt like I was seeing something, I was born anew. I was looking at that flower, I stared at it for 10 minutes. I never would have even seen it with the detritus of the jade that was encasing me as a person. This is what I recommend to you. Go small and you will find you. Chip away and you will find that. And that, my friends, that's the true you. These are your true values. What is your blue passion flower that you're walking past numbly to get to the car, to get to the possessions, to get to the money? it's not worth it. Now, I'm not going to tell you this is easy. I was describing this exercise to a, a scion of, of, um, of Wall Street, a woman who's unbelievably successful, a, a person who started a financial services firm who's worth billions of dollars, my age. And she said, I don't know. I, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. But she's unhappy. She's unhappy. She's dissatisfied. She said, I feel like my decision-making isn't as crisp as it used to be. I'm feeling like I'm burned out. I feel like my husband and I are roommates, she said. I feel like I have a cordial relationship with my adult children. I'm getting bad news from the doctor. I'm drinking too much. What do I do? I'm stuck. What do I do? And I said, you don't, you don't need me to tell you what to do. You don't need me to, you just told me what you need to do. Why don't you step back from your firm? Why don't you go away with your husband? Why don't you reacquaint yourself with your children and get into Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever you need to do? She said, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I prefer to be special than happy. How many of you have made that choice? How often have I made that choice? A lot. A lot. There are many days when I chose the 14th hour at my office over the first hour with my children, and I'm not... Getting those years back. They're growing up. Hey, I got the Camino with my little girl. But it's not the same. I chose special over happy a hundred times, a thousand times, because I knew I needed to chip away. But I didn't do it. So where are we? You always want more, but this won't give you lasting satisfaction. Absorb this truth. Two, the secret is to want less, not to have more. Three, chip away to find your true self. You are in there. And number four, choose happiness over specialness. It's the right choice, and it's the only choice. That it will give you what your heart truly desires. Now, this can be done. Let me introduce you, as I finish, to a man who did it. I told you I made a, I made a big career shift Or you probably figured that out. I'm not a French horn player anymore. I, you know, If I were still a French horn player, I'd be playing over the music tent as opposed to the Greenwald Pavilion today. I did it full time from when I was 19 until I was 31. It was a, a beautiful life, I have to say, although I like this life better. And when I was a classical musician, my favorite, my favorite composer was Johann Sebastian Bach, the man in this picture who's behind the keyboard. Johann Sebastian Bach, unbelievably productive. He published more than a, a thousand pieces of music for every conceivable instrumentation. He also had 20 children, which is productive. <laughs> Bach was asked near the end of his life, why do you write music? Why do you write music? You know, interesting, right? What do you do? Remember the question, the icebreaker question at the party, what do you do for a living? If somebody said, why do you do that for a living, would you have an answer? You need an answer. Bach had an answer. He said, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. I thought, man, can I answer that question that way? I don't think so. I literally left music so I could answer that question like Johann Sebastian Bach. I believe that today, what I do for a living, talking to you about the bliss that we're, to which we're entitled and to which we can serve our fellow women and men around the, around the world that need it so badly, this This is more like Bach's mission than what I had before. Bach pushed me out of music and made me an economist. How bizarre is that? Hmm. That's what his genius was. But his life wasn't perfect. Originally, he was the greatest innovator of his time. Bach was known as the master of the high baroque. But halfway through, he kind of lost his groove because musical styles changed. They actually changed because his son, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, ushered in a new style of music called the classical style that took Europe by storm, leaving the high baroque in the past as anachronistic sounding as disco sounds to us today. And Bach couldn't keep up. So what did he do? What did Bach do? He chipped away the detritus of his career, and inside he found himself the master teacher. He stopped being the famous composer and he dedicated himself to writing what the next generation might find for their own greatness. He went from his innovator to his teacher. He wanted less. <laughs> How did he do it? Well, it's interesting. You know, he actually dedicated himself to writing textbooks, among other things. He, uh, Near the end of his life, he started on a textbook called Die Kunst der Füge, The Art of Fugue, which is uh, nothing more than a way to teach the techniques that had fallen out of favor. Maybe somebody would love them, maybe somebody would find them interesting in future generations. It was rediscovered 100 years after his death by a composer named Felix Mendelssohn, who dusted it off and he said, you guys gotta hear this, this is the best thing ever. And it became concert music 100 years after his death. We play it in concerts today, imagine, writing a textbook of accounting that's so beautiful that people read it as literature. That's Bach's genius. He had no idea. He gave away his glory. He chipped away the outside parts of who he was and found inner satisfaction. He died surrounded. This is a portrait of Bach with his many children and many, many grandchildren. He was surrounded by his students, beloved, full of life, full of love, even as the life ebbed out from his body, I want to play you now what he was literally writing the moment he died. Because written in the margin of the piece I'm about to play for you is in the hand in, this, in the in the handwriting of his son, who had supplanted him. At this point, the composer put down his pen and died. Strong finish. <laughs> this is the man who chipped away greatness and found himself, Johann Sebastian Bach, on his very last composition. Thank you. Bach's last lesson was that happiness is love, which is the ultimate source of satisfaction that each one of us can get. So if you want to remember this, I'm going to give you one phrase, and you're not going to forget it because I've imprinted it with Bach's greatest work on your brains. Remember this. Here's the punchline of what I'm saying here. (laughs) Be Bach, not Mick, my friends. This is my wife and my little girl, Marina, on the Camino. She didn't come back. She stayed in Spain where she's studying. She made a run for the border after her Zoom experience. And I have, I'm delighted to tell you that she is finding this at a much earlier age than I found it myself. My greatest hope for you is that at any point in your life, you can absorb these messages to manage yourself, to pass these ideas on to other people, and to remember that satisfaction can be yours and that happiness truly is love. Thank you.
0: Arthur Brooks is the William Henry Bloomberg Professor of the Practice of Public Leadership at Harvard Kennedy School and a Professor of Management Practice at Harvard Business School. Previously, he was President of the American Enterprise Institute for a decade. Brooks is the author of 12 books, including the national bestseller, From Strength to Strength. He's also a columnist for The Atlantic, a public speaker, and a podcast host. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go wherever you're listening. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.